as we enter into this time of worship through the word. I want to call you to adore our king according to his own revelation in Mark's gospel this morning. If you would, let's pray and ask God to open our eyes to see the wonderful things that are written in his law about this king that we come to adore this morning. Heavenly Father, we come this morning based on and through the merits of our King Jesus. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins, to pay our penalty, to live a life that we could never live, and to grant us entrance into your kingdom through his righteous atoning blood. We thank you for the gift of salvation this morning, Father. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for illumination that shows us the beauty of our King according to your word. Thank you for the written word of God. We thank you that we have this to guide us, to direct us today in our worship. Lord, we want to be submitted this morning to your lordship, to your kingly reign in our own hearts. And as we come to your word, we pray that we would be bowing low in submission and that we would take your admonishment here, we would take your direction to heart. For it is you, our King, that is speaking to us through your word this morning. And I pray that each and every person here would hear the voice of their King. And if they do not know you as a King this morning, as their Savior, I pray today you would grant them eyes to see your glory. I ask this in Jesus' name and for our good. Amen. Amen. If you would, please open God's Word with me to Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're going to begin reading at verse 9 and read down to verse 15 to continue on where we left off the last time I was in Mark when we covered 14a. So we'll continue looking at 14 and 15 in particular this morning, but for the context and the setting, let's read from 9 to 15 so we are in tune with God's word this morning. Mark 1, 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, now this is a year that's transpired between verse 13 and 14, so understand that. There's a gap of a year here. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. He came into Galilee, it says, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What a transcendent message that is today. That's the same message that we are called to proclaim. That the kingdom came with our king when he was incarnated. As we celebrated last week on that first Christmas day. He came, and he is now preaching in Galilee, that the kingdom of God is at hand, and those who would be in the kingdom must repent and believe his message. What we see here in verses 14 and 15, basically are our Lord's first public act of compassion, and that public act came through preaching. Jesus came in the flesh, preaching the same message that you and I can deliver to others now today in the flesh. It's a supremely divine message, but it came through a human messenger. A human messenger who was both God and man. But nonetheless, he gave it to us in a way that we could also follow his method. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus is displaying his overarching passion in his ministry, which was preaching. And I think in the same text, we should see that God is displaying to us a divine pattern for us to follow in our ministry. Because we can do this also. We can proclaim the same message that we see here, Jesus proclaiming in verses 14 and 15. 
On your outline, it says Mark 1, 14-15 reveals to us two things. It reveals to us, number one, a divine method that declares God's salvation in 14b there, which would be preaching, or proclaiming, or evangelizing, or explaining. And verses 15, or verse 15 rather, reveals to us, number two, a divine message that demands mankind's attention. So we have a divine method that declares God's salvation, and we have a divine message that demands man's attention. This is for our good and for God's glory that we learn this today. If you look at 14b, you'll see that it reveals to us, number one, the divine method Jesus used to call sinners to salvation. Let me just read the whole verse. Verse 14 says, Now after John was arrested... This was after John had decreased in his ministry. God saw to it that John would decrease and Christ would increase. So John was arrested. Jesus came into Galilee, came back into his home region. After a year of ministering privately as God's messenger to his people throughout Judea and all these regions, and then came back to Galilee. He came back to Galilee, it says, proclaiming the gospel of God, which is a very great term for us to remember. It's God's gospel. It's God's good news that Jesus was proclaiming. It's good news from God about God. It's good news about God's mercy to sinners that would come through the work of His Son. That mercy we receive comes through Christ and His ministry, and we can proclaim that same message today to sinners, those in need of hope, those in need of mercy. We can tell them that God has good news There's good news. God, the Son, took on flesh to come into this earth, into this world, to live our life and die our death, and to rise to declare He was righteous and He was accepted by the Father. And for all who believe in Him and repent of their sins, they can have eternal life and enter into God's kingdom. We can proclaim that message. That's God's good news. According to Mark here in this text, the divine method of delivering sinners comes through preaching. And I don't want you to misunderstand that. I don't want you to think of preaching as just what I'm doing right now. Because if you do that, you're going to exclude yourself from that. This is proclaiming. This is the word caruso. It's to proclaim loudly and urgently and boldly. By the way, you're all commissioned to do that. If you've read the last part of the Gospels, you'll see that. The Great Commission calls you to go into the world and make disciples by proclaiming God's good news. Preaching, what Jesus did here in particular, preaching is the passionate proclamation and explanation of God's revelation. Did you get that? It rhymes so it's easy to remember. It's the passionate proclamation and explanation of God's revelation that is found in God's Word. And it was done urgently in Jesus' case. It should be done urgently in our case as well. It was an urgent declaration that Jesus proclaimed. And it was urgent because men's souls were at stake and God's glory was at stake. Jesus came on a mission from God. His mission was to honor His Father, bring glory to His Father. And the best way He could do that was proclaiming truth about His Father and the truth about man who needs a saving and a good Father. This method that Jesus delivered to us here, preaching or proclaiming or explaining, is something that we are commanded to follow. You and I are commanded to follow this according to the epistles that we read, according to the Apostle Paul. We are called in the epistles to preach the Word. Jesus is preaching the Word here. Jesus is quoting here the promises that were given in the Old Testament when He says, the kingdom of God is coming, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe. He's basing this off of truth that they had known growing up in Israel. He's basing it off of the truth of the Word of God that they have heard. And we're commanded to do this also. If you'll go with me to 2 Timothy, you'll see that. 2 Timothy 3.16. This is a very important text. Now, I know it's written in the context of the pastoral epistles. But remember, when you read the pastorals, pastors are called to lead the way for the church. We are called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That means we cut a path, as the way Paul puts it. He says, be an example. And the word in the Greek actually talks about a man who cuts a path for others to follow. 
And so even when we read this text and you think, okay, that's what Randy's doing this morning, and I'm not really called to do that publicly like Randy is, uh, that may be true. However, you can follow my pattern in your individual ministries to those around you because this is the pattern that God has chosen to reveal His glory, to expose man's sin, to heal our sin, to show us the way of salvation. It all comes through God's Word. And here in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 4, 5, you'll see why we must follow this method. This is Jesus' method. This is God's method of reaching sinners. And if we don't use this method, people will replace it with man-centered ideas and philosophies. And they will draw people away from the simplicity and the glorious gospel of God. And they will fill that void with man-centered ideas. Ideas that will take them further off the path rather than leading them back to God and His glory. We want to make sure we're on the path. We have no original thoughts here. We have God's thoughts to proclaim. Original thoughts are dangerous. If men come up to you with ideas that they say, this is new, 2,000 years of church history has never discovered this, but I have discovered this. Listen to my plan. You need to run. We have an original message from God that is sufficient, and frankly, it's more than we can handle half the time anyway, isn't it? I don't need any new revelations. I'm still working on the ones that I've been given by God here in the text. But the reason we preach this is because this is what God has commanded. It says in verse 16, All Scripture. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, and Timothy and Paul both are living in the time period in which the New Testament has not been written. So he's speaking of Old Testament Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Now, that would also now include the New Testament. He says, all Scripture is theonoustos, breathed out by God. It's the very breath of God that comes to us. It's profitable for teaching. So it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. There's really nothing else we need as Christians. We have our correction here. We have our training here. We have our directions. We have everything we need for life and godliness that is found in God's revelation. It's here. And so Paul says in verse 4, or 4 verse 1, it says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. The command there, preach the word. Do it when it's popular. Do it when it's not popular. Do it when the world says you should, and do it when the world says you shouldn't. It doesn't matter what they say. God said it. And He said, I'm charging you in the very presence of God to do this. You're commanded in God's presence. Preach the Word. Be ready in season, out of season, and reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why, Paul? Why, Jesus? Why is this the method that you followed, Christ? Why is this the method that we should follow? Well, verse 3 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Yes, Paul's talking to Timothy here as the evangelist of this church Yes, he's talking to me here as a pastor of this church. He's talking to Nate here as a pastor of this church. But he's also talking to you in your personal ministry, your evangelism. Saying, look at these that I've charged to set the pattern for you to follow. Namely, Jesus, then Paul, then Timothy. Follow their pattern. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Because in this Word, sinners find hope. They find the revelation of God's grace and mercy. It's in the Word of God. This is good news. This is good news because, again, we're given a method here that we can emulate. We can follow. It's good news for us. We can follow Jesus' method of ministry. Think about this. We have a message declared to us by the incarnate Son of God, Jesus. And that message is about God's love for sinners. We have that message delivered to us by the Spirit of God, and it's inscripturated. It's in a written form. Why do you think that is the case? 
It wasn't because they, they forgot it. It's because we would forget it. Because we need a, direct, a, a directive. We need something to guide us. So we have it inscripturated so we can go back to it and we can keep on proclaiming it, keep on declaring it. We can proclaim God's gospel as Jesus did. Matter of fact, you can proclaim the very same words as God here in this text. You can speak the word of God to people as Christ's ambassadors. That's amazing. You have been given a message by the greatest messenger of them all, the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been given that message and a method, a way of proclaiming it by teaching it to others. And you've been given it in a written form so you will not forget it. You will not have to make it up on your own. You can trust in it. It is without error. It is powerful. It will transform the hearts of those who hear by God's grace. And we can do this as His ambassadors. You're given that treasure in earthen vessels. You and I have the very... Theonoustos, the very Word of God placed inside of us. How could we not proclaim it? How could we not share this with people who are dying in their sins and headed to hell? How could we not declare the mercy of our God that saved us? See, if you're a Christian, you're a witness. And if you're a witness, you're going to have to proclaim God's message, which is declared to us by Jesus here. Christ proclaimed God's message God's gospel. And listen, when Jesus preached, it wasn't dry. It was spirit-filled, spirit-controlled. It was passionate. It was compassionate. But he was passionately preaching for God's glory, number one, and man's salvation, number two. That method is what we need to follow also. Listen, when you're evangelizing, when you're ministering to others, that's the right order. If you seek to honor your God, honor your King by declaring His truth, by lifting up His glorious name, by declaring His greatness and His holiness and His sovereignty, you will reach mankind powerfully. But that has to be your foremost goal and desire in your ministry. This is the method that Jesus followed. He sought to declare the kingdom of God, God's message to man. And from that, men benefited. And when you pursue that in your ministry, men will benefit from your preaching, from your teaching, from your proclamation. And I think each one of you can do it differently because each of you have different personalities and different ministry avenues in front of you. Yet God has given you the same message no matter where you go. It's transcendent. Culture, time, whatever. You can carry this message in there because this is the message from God. It is never antiquated. It never changes. But it changes those who hear it. So we need to follow Jesus' method. And I think we need to follow Jesus' passion in our ministry of evangelism. Again, evangelism, witnessing, right? Witnessing, all you're really doing is worshiping. Just think about that. When you go to witness, your intention is to proclaim truth about Jesus. To glorify your God. It's an act of worship toward God and it's an act of mercy toward men. It's twofold. Evangelism just unveils God's grace before men. It's something you rejoice in and you share with others as an act of worship that flows out of the regenerated heart. The heart that's been born again. That was Jesus' method. I think Jesus preached so passionately that people couldn't help but say, when I hear this man, it's like a, like a man I've never heard before. This is preaching like I've never heard before. It comes with authority. And it's transforming those who hear it. But yet it's the same message that he's given to us to proclaim. In Mark 1.14, we see that Jesus gave us a divine method. But in 1.15, we can also see that he reveals to us, number two, the divine message that demands mankind's attention. Look with me at Mark 1.15. After Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, it says, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now those are both, I believe, definite articles in this text. The specific time and the specific reign of God is at hand. Repent and believe in 
the gospel. Believe in the good news. Believe in the good news that is promised by God in the Old Testament and now being revealed to you in the flesh in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, believe in God's promise. Believe because the promise is fulfilled. I am here. My acts that I've done in private testify to my power and my authority. You've seen that in this year of personal ministry. Now you see it coming to fruition in my preaching, in my proclamation. Listen and you will be changed. That's what he is saying. You'll be able to repent and believe in this message. In 15a, the first half there, we see that the message Jesus came preaching was that, number one, the time is fulfilled. It's a very important phrase. He means God's appointed moment, God's promised time period. The kairos is the word that's used here, not chronos, not clock time, but rather the era of time, the divine point in history that God had appointed, as Galatians 4 points out. Look with me at Galatians 4, verse 4. This is the time that here the Apostle Paul calls the fullness of time. This was the allotted time, the specific sovereign time of God that he set apart before the foundation of the world. This was God's planned period of grace. It's a specific moment in man's history that God had set apart before time began in eternity past. It says here in Galatians 4, 4, when, but when... The fullness of time had come. God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. At the fullness of time, God intervened according to His Old Testament promises, according to what He had gave to the prophets before. He sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, born of a woman, under the law in this time period in order to fulfill the requirements of God for us so that we who believe can become adopted sons and daughters of God, brought into His kingdom through the work of His Son who happens to be our King. The kingdom of God is at hand. The fullness of time has come. This is God's sovereign moment of glory. It's what the Gospel of Mark is talking about here and the Apostle Paul is talking about. Listen, this is the most important era of time in all human history. This is the hinge on which all human history swings. Think about that. This is the time that we actually not only rejoice about in time and space, but we we will rejoice about this in eternity. We'll sing about the fullness of time from now on. Look with me at Revelation 5 to see that. Revelation 5 declares this. This is amazing. The fullness of time, the time that God had set apart to intervene on man's behalf through the work of His Son, that will be the song that we sing about now and throughout eternity. It's not only the hinge on which human history swings on earth, it is the hinge on which everything swings. Everything in eternity swings on this. The angels rejoice at our salvation now and they'll rejoice in eternity. They're going to rejoice because the fullness of time had come. And in amazing grace, God sent forth His Son. And this is what we'll sing with all of the saints in heaven. Revelation 5.9 And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. This is what we're doing right now. We are rejoicing in this truth. We are rejoicing because God's reign has come, in one sense, in our hearts spiritually. But one day, God's reign will come visibly and physically on a new heaven and a new earth. We will be here with Him as He reigns in His eternal kingdom. And we will be here because of what it says in verse 9, because Jesus was slain and His blood ransomed us. Because He came according to God's plan. 
This is what we're going to rejoice about in heaven. So we should rejoice now as well. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son for our sake and for His glory. This is the time period that, if you look in Romans 8, this is the time period that the whole world, since the fall in the Garden of Eden, the whole world, physical world, has groaned for, longed for, sought after. And this is the time period in which mankind has needed. Since Adam fell, we have needed Another Adam. We have needed another federal head. We have needed someone to take the place of Adam, someone who is greater than Adam. But through Adam, we in, received an imputed sin nature. Through Christ, we receive an imputed righteousness. This is what we longed for. This is, again, literally, the earth is groaning for that time. The time when the earth will be renewed because Jesus came in the fullness of time. In 8.18 it says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy, or not worth rather, comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You realize the creation is waiting for the day of our coronation. When we stand before the king and are receiving crowns for what he has done, then the whole creation will be renewed and rejoice. And we are all there by grace. We are all there because of God's mercy in sending forth His Son to be our substitute. The world's waiting on that. The world will rejoice in that. But in the time period before that happens, the world groans because of sin. You know, we don't want to just put the blame on Adam, as Nate pointed out last week, that the blame doesn't fall just to Adam. That we have an imputed sin nature due to Adam, we willfully choose to sin on our own. Sin is something we pursue on our own. And that sin brings misery and heartache to the world around us, to all creation. And the world is groaning because of that. And amazingly, God in His mercy experienced that groaning personally. When Jesus was incarnated, He heard the groaning. He smelt, he smelt the decay of sin that came into the world because of Adam and because of individuals. He smelt that, he felt that, he heard that, he saw that groaning while he was growing up in Galilee. I hadn't thought about this until last night, but I was thinking about this. I was thinking the sinless, sympathetic Son of God. He saw the heartache and misery of sin, and he saw it up close for 30 years, and he didn't preach a sermon about it. It was being stored up for the appointed time. And in three years, he turned the world upside down in preaching the gospel of God. In three years, after being prepared of watching 30 years of suffering, he came forth proclaiming God's message of mercy to sinners. And he came forth powerfully. He saw that sin. He smelt that sin. He felt that sin around him with those who were hurting He sympathized with us. And I know in in my mind as a preacher, as I'm sitting here thinking about preparing sermons and I have a fire shut up in my bones, I'm thinking, 30 years! He didn't preach! Could you imagine the zeal and the passion and the love and the mercy that poured forth out of Jesus' lips when He did preach? It wasn't a dry sermon. It was powerful. And listen, that sermon he preached, he gave to us to preach. We have his message. And we should have his passion. When the fullness of time, when time was fulfilled, according to God's plan, that 30-year dam of mercy that was in his heart burst forth. And he came forth preaching. He came forth proclaiming, good news, good news. God has intervened on your behalf. God has come to fulfill His promises, and here I am. He has come 
to fulfill the promises that were made to Isaiah. Isaiah 61. And the prophecy here that even Jesus picked up and read in the synagogue when He came in His preaching ministry. In Isaiah 61 and verse 1. This was the good news Jesus came to proclaim when the time was fulfilled. Now what I want you to understand, you read verses 1 to 2a, you don't read 2b, because 2b hasn't yet come. That's the second advent of Christ, when He comes again to judge the quick and the dead. But here, He gave good news. He he even read this in the synagogue, and He read it, and they were amazed by this message that He proclaimed. He says, this is fulfilled today in me. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, the spiritually impoverished. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, those who are brokenhearted over their sins. To proclaim liberty to those who are captive to their sins. And he says he came to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus read this in the synagogue and they heard this and they were amazed by His teaching, but then they were greatly offended when He said, this is about Me. I am the One. I am the King who is coming. I am the King who is coming to proclaim this truth to you today. If you'll look with me back in Mark, go back with me to Mark 1. What Jesus is saying here is, the time had come. The time had come and God's promised King had arrived. That's what Jesus is proclaiming. When you come to Mark 1.15. In Mark 1.15, what we hear is basically in Jesus' message, that dam of mercy breaking forth through His preaching. And Again, I think if, if you've experienced salvation, if you have been truly regenerated, born again, this is the message that should be bubbling inside of your heart, waiting for an opportunity to proclaim it with zeal and passion, just as Christ did. That is your mission. Jesus pursued this hard for three years because He knew this was His time. And listen, Jesus had a sovereign understanding of what was going to happen in the next three years. You and I don't. Today may be your time to preach this message for the very last time. I think Richard Baxter said, I want to preach the gospel. I preach it to dying men. I want to preach like a dying man You know, I may never have another opportunity to call you to repent and believe in Jesus, to trust in your Savior, rejoice in the Lord Jesus. And so I shouldn't hold back. You shouldn't hold back either when you witness. This is your allotted time. And you have God's method. You have God's message that you can proclaim as Christ did. Now again, 15 says, in saying this, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the second thing we see Jesus preach. The message Jesus came preaching was that the kingdom of God is at hand. That could be a troublesome text. You may not understand that fully, and that's okay. Maybe this will help shine some light on it. The kingdom of God is at hand simply means this. God's reign is near. God's reign is near because God's king is here. That's what he's saying. The king has come. The king of ages himself has come in the fullness of God's promises, in the fullness of time. What we need to understand, when Jesus says this, this is really one way in which He's asserting His deity. He's asserting His Messiahship, though He's not calling Himself the Messiah, and though He's not calling Himself God, He's saying the kingdom of God is at hand, and watch me and see. Watch what I do. Watch who I am. Listen to my words. Judge me according to my works, and tell me who I am. We would testify that He is who He claimed to be. He is the King. He is the King of ages. He is the Redeemer of man. He was God's revealed King. He was God's revealed Healer, Protector, Provider, and Savior of sinners. That's who Jesus is. Listen, when you look into the text and the New Testament and the Gospels, what you see is, you see Jesus asserting that He is the King because Jesus came with kingdom authority. Jesus came and healed the sick. Sovereignly, supernaturally. Jesus came and exerted His power and overcame demons, supernaturally. Jesus gave life to the dead, supernaturally. Jesus forgave sinners, supernaturally. This was the act of a king. You and I can't do any of those things. 
And Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. Here I am. Watch me work. Watch my life. And if you see my life, you will respond by repenting and believing in God's promise. Believe in God's promise that He would send a Messiah. He would send a Savior. He would send a King who would come. And that King has arrived. The King of Kings is there. He's displaying His purity, His power, His authority, His love. Wherever Jesus went, His rulership, His authority, His reign went. His rulership and reign over creation was always evident when Jesus ministered. It didn't matter what city, what area, what situation. His very actions described the king at work. The kingdom of God is with man. God has pitched his tent with us. He is here. Look with me and see this in Mark and in Luke. In Mark 3, Jesus asserts his kingdom rule over sickness, his authority, his sovereign ability to heal in 3.1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the most amazing text is the next verse. This is, this is the king bringing compassion to a sick person. And look how the religious people responded. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. I remember Haddon one time hearing me read that, and he said, Dad, that doesn't make sense. Jesus did good. Why would they want to kill him? Well, the king was a threat to their kingdom. This king came in and exhibited his authority over them, and they were threatened. They didn't want to submit to this king. They didn't want to submit to his authority. And yet he went around exhibiting it everywhere he went. Again, not only healing the sick, but also showing authority over demons. Look what chapter 5 says, 5.1. They came to the other side of the sea. Now, he was previously healing in the synagogue, and now he's going to the Gentile land. Okay, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chain apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Interestingly enough, the demons saw Jesus' authority. They recognized it. And then in verse 8 it says, For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding near on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. That is an astounding verse. He gave demons permission. That means he has authority. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they were drowned in the sea. Everywhere Jesus goes, his authority is made evident. In the synagogue and with the demon-possessed. Not only that, if you look further down in chapter 5, you see his authority even over death itself. In 538, speaks in an account when he was called upon to come to a ruler's house because 
A child was sick, a child was dying. And there it says in verse 38, They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And look at his authority here. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, no doubt. He just raised a dead girl. He just gave life to the dead. This is the power of the king. This is the power of the sovereign one. He is the one who shows that he has authority over not only sickness, not only demons, but also over death itself. When he says the kingdom is at hand, he's saying, look, life is with me. God's kingdom, God's reign, God's rulership is in me. Come to me. I can do this for you that you cannot do on your own. I can give life. I can heal the spiritually sick. I can cast out the demons. I can actually forgive sin, according to what it says in Luke. Look what Luke says. Luke 7. Luke seven forty four. This is a story about a sinner, a woman who is a sinner, who came to a Pharisee's house to anoint the feet of Jesus. And the Pharisee was still judging her for who she is and what she's done. Yet Jesus takes a different perspective, and Jesus does something for her she could not do on her own. Verse 44, let's pick it up there. It says, Then turning toward the woman, this is the woman I'm speaking of, he said to Simon, the Pharisee, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins. You know why they said that? She hadn't sinned against Simon. She hadn't sinned against Jesus in the flesh. These are sins that she offended God with. You see, if someone offends you, you can forgive them that offense. But when you offend God, I can't forgive you that offense. But when God in human flesh stands in your presence and says, You are forgiven, the king has pardoned your sins. He did that for her. He forgave her the sins that she had committed against God Almighty because Jesus was the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God in human flesh. The time was being fulfilled. The kingdom of God was with men. It was at hand. Everywhere He went, His rulership was evident. His reign was evident. When he calls his disciples, they immediately drop everything and come with him. Is that the way it is with you this morning? Is Jesus' lordship, is his rulership and his reign evident in your life? Is it evident? Are you submitted to his lordship? Are you willing to drop sin and follow him? Are you willing to listen to his leadership? Follow His Word. Are you still struggling with wanting to rule your own life? Or are you submitted to the King? This is not an option. The only people who get into the kingdom are submitted to the King. Without submission, there is no entrance into heaven. But the good news is, He's the one who grants you submission. You must call upon Him. You must willingly submit to Him. You must do so today. And if, if you willingly want to do that this morning, you should also follow His directions here in Mark's Gospel, in preaching, in ministry. You should follow the King's method of ministry. You should proclaim God's message, God's Gospel, and do so with compassion, with mercy. 
You do that because you benefited from it, right? I was thinking of illustrations, and I've got a really good one here. If you were dying, and your heart was failing, and someone gave you the greatest gift you could never earn, which is a new heart, and that heart was placed in your body, and you came up out of the hospital, and you didn't tell anybody about that, that's unthinkable, right? If you've been given a new heart, a new lease on life, and you didn't rejoice in that and share that with other people and didn't testify to God's grace to you in that, that would be unthinkable. You wouldn't think of doing that. You would be telling people all the time when they ask you, how are things going? How are you feeling? I feel much better now that I have a new heart. And listen, it's even more unthinkable that we who have received a new heart, a regenerated heart, through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's more unthinkable for us to be silent and not proclaim this message from God that we have benefited from. Just think about it. On the physical side, you would rejoice and tell everyone what happened. But you've been given a greater gift because our physical hearts wear out. But the regenerated heart never ceases. It will exist eternally in God's presence, awaiting His kingdom to come on earth where we will reign with Him as we enter into His kingdom that He granted us through the sacrifice of His Son. Now, go back with me to Mark. Mark 1.15 again. Here in this text, the King declares to us the demands of His kingdom. He gives us the demands that He places on His subjects. All who would live in the kingdom under His reign, under His rule, must listen to His message here. Therefore, if you desire to be a believer, if you want to be a believer, if you are a believer, you will be submitted to this, this demand. In 15c, it says the king's message is very clear, right? Jesus came preaching that all men must repent and believe in the gospel. Now the kingdom is at hand. That means the king is commanding us here. The king's command is repent and believe. Again, this is God's righteous requirement. God the Son's righteous requirement for all those who would enter into the kingdom of God. We're all commanded here to obey Jesus' message. And if we do not obey his message, if we, if we disregard the king, if we rebel against the king, we face his fiery judgment. He's either going to be your savior or your judge but you will see Him in eternity. But prayerfully, you'll see Him as your Savior, as your Redeemer. But we're all commanded to obey our Redeemer, our King's message. Look with me at Acts 17 to see that. It's clear that this message transcended just the Gospels accounts themselves. It went on into the book of Acts, and then we can see that it's played out in the Apostle Paul's ministry. But here, in Acts 17, verse 30, it says... The twofold notice here of either you'll rejoice in his, in his message and obey it, or you'll face his fiery judgment. It's laid out here for us in verse 30, down to verse 31 anyway. So the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, notice, he commands. He commands. Okay? He commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands all people everywhere to repent. That means if the king commands it and you disregard it, you're in direct violation of his command. Your rebellion is going to cost you. He says to do this, repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, the one who came in the fullness of time. That would be Jesus. And of this... He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. And let me just give you some assurance here. If you desire to repent, and I'll explain what that means a little clearer in a moment. If you desire repentance, if you desire to trust in God's promises, follow God's direction, that's good news. The unredeemed don't desire these things. They cannot desire these things and they will not desire these things unless God Himself intervenes and opens their eyes to see the glory of Jesus and the depth of their sin and offenses. 
God will do that. And when God has done that, when God regenerates, regeneration precedes faith, He regenerates and then we trust in Him because He's removed the blinders. He's given us a new heart that is sensitive to the things of God, sensitive to the Word of God. We will rejoice in it by turning from sin and turning to God's promises and God's promised Redeemer, which is Jesus. If we don't, there is a fiery hell awaiting. If you don't desire this, Judgment is coming. This is gospel truth. This is God's message. God's gospel. Look at Revelation 16 to see this. This, to me, is again one of the most mind-boggling passages of Scripture I've ever read. Here are men and women and children in the time of God's wrath being poured upon all creation And in a sense, God's mercy is there because it's as if when He pours this wrath out, there's a pause, a divine pause, to allow them repentance and to confess their sins and run to their Savior. But instead, man's heart is so hardened by sins, it would rather curse God and receive His wrath than repent and follow Jesus' Lordship. I don't understand that. Sin is irrational, folks. Sin is destructive. It blinds us to God's glory in Christ. Look what 16.1 says. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Folks, there's nothing that we can humanly use to describe this, to illustrate this. The wrath we saw poured out on Jesus was beyond human explanation. And this is also... God's righteous indignation is being poured out on the earth, on those who have rebelled against Him. And it says, So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. This is massive devastation. Just imagine what this looks like. You you haven't seen a movie that comes close to this. You couldn't imagine this. You couldn't even fathom the smell of this. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and was, or who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. This is God's righteous judgment against those who have persecuted His church. And the angel says, you are good in doing this. This is righteous. Verse 7, And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun And it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. It doesn't say they repented. And they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. The fifth angel poured out His bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Church, repentance isn't a human work. It is a divine gift from God. They were dead in their sins and even in the midst of God's wrath, which should have opened up their eyes to the, the depth of their offenses, they could have repented, it seems. Yet they would not and they could not Because they loved that sin more than they loved the God of heaven. So they cursed him. Listen, you and I would be in that same condition apart from God's intervention. We were at enmity with God. We were shaking our fist at God when God reached down and opened up our hands so we could receive his gift. All people everywhere are commanded to repent of their sin and believe in God's gospel concerning Jesus Christ. Everyone. That's your message that you are to proclaim. Let me explain it a little bit. Repentance means this, and again, Nate covered this well last week, but let me go over it again because we need to be reminded. Repentance means to turn 
and go the opposite way. That's not just mentally. That means in your activity. If you are pursuing unrighteousness and sin and depravity, you are to turn from that because your heart and your mind has recognized that as an offense that hung Jesus on the cross. And out of thankfulness for your salvation, you run from that. You turn away from that. You turn away from breaking God's law. You know, and that's not all you turn away from, by the way. That's rebellion. When you break God's law, that's rebellion. But you know, we rebel against God in other ways. We rebel against God when we try to find a way to God on our own, by our own righteousness, by our own good deeds, by our religious works. That's rebellion also, because you're saying, I don't need the king, I don't need Jesus. I can find salvation by keeping these commandments or doing these rituals. You need to turn away from your self-righteous religion as well as your offenses. Both are acts of treason in God's sight. We don't just repent, though. We have to submit. We have to submit to His revelation. We have to believe in what He has promised, or again, we'll face His judgment. We have to believe as well as repent. And, And we do that because God has shown us in our repenting that it required a divine substitution to transform our condition. Our transformation was due to Jesus' divine substitution. That's what causes us to run away from the things that offended Him, the things that hung Him on the cross. And it turns us to trusting in His message. And that should demand our attention, just like it says in the text here in Mark 1.15. In Mark 1.15, Jesus commands us not only to turn away from one thing, but to turn to something else. Repent and believe in the good news. The good news is the revelation God has promised in the Old Testament, revealed in Christ in the New Testament. Put your trust in God's revelation. Sometimes when we talk about belief, people think that it's something that you stir up. I'm just going to have faith. I'm going to have faith that this will work out. No, faith is objective. Belief is objective. Trust is objective trust here. Your trust is based on what you put your faith in, which is objective, which is the work of Christ which was promised in the Old Testament. So put your trust in God's revelation. It's not just trust in anything, not just trust in a a feeling, an emotional high. No, you put your confidence in the promises of God because frankly, folks, even as a Christian, when you sin, you don't always feel like a Christian, right? I may go back and forth and back and forth, but when I remember God's objective promise that my sins have been atoned for, to tell us die, it is finished. Jesus paid it in full. When I recognize that and remember that, I can move forward in my sanctification. But it's an objective trust that we must exercise. We must turn from trusting in our good deeds, turn from trusting in religious activity, and turn to God's revelation of grace that took on flesh and came to us personally. Mankind must trust in the one that God sent to take our place. That's the gospel. That's repenting and believing in God's message. The one who came to take our place was Jesus It's through His substitutionary atonement that we are saved. Jesus came into this world as a child, as a human, fully God, fully man, lived a complete life of obedience to God, following all of God's commands from the heart and externally. And He did that to impute to us His righteous standing before God. It's not that He just took away our sins. That's great. But we have to have a positive righteousness to stand before God on the judgment day. So he took away our sins on the cross, but he also imputed to us his righteousness, his life of obedience. So that when God sees us now, he sees the life of his son, not us. That's good news. That good news was proclaimed in Genesis 3.15 from the very beginning of God's revelation. It was proclaimed there so that we could trust in God's promised provision That's how we enter into His kingdom, by trusting in the King, trusting in what He promised. Do you believe God? Do you believe that God would send forth His Son and that His Son would take your place? Have you trusted in that completely? Are you trusting in your righteousness or your good deeds or or your religious activity? If so, repent of that. Turn away from that and turn to what God has promised to do in Christ. He has promised to provide a sacrifice for His people. Look with me. You see that in in an illustration in Genesis 22. We see that God promised to provide a sacrifice in the Old Testament. And He gave an illustration of that in Genesis 22 in Abraham's life. 22 and verse 1. 
After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to, the young, to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father? And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Notice verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place. The Lord will provide. Jesus Christ is our provision here. He is our ram that was caught in the thicket. He is the one who took our place. And unlike the son in this story, he became the son who was laid on the altar for us and was sacrificed in our place. He was the perfect lamb of God that took on flesh to live and die for all who trust in Him and repent of their offenses. This is an astounding illustration of what God would do to His own Son on our behalf. That is God's gospel. That is what we are given to proclaim to others. Isn't that amazing? You are an ambassador of this message. You are a recipient of this grace. How could you keep quiet about it? How can I, if we have trusted in this message... He has granted you salvation. He has granted you faith and repentance if you've trusted this, if you believe this message. And that also means He changed you internally. He's changing you externally, progressively, and He's going to complete your transformation one day eternally. And all of that is based on what God has done personally for you in the work of His Son. When the King came, He came not to be a king, but to be a slave and give His life as a ransom for many. And if He is your King, you will be marked by submission to His rulership. You'll be marked by repentance and trust in His Word. You'll be marked by obedience to this command that we see in 115 of Mark's Gospel. You will be a repenter continually. When you've offended God in your sin, you will continually confess that sin in agreement with God about your sin, thanking Him that Jesus has paid the penalty. You'll rejoice in the fact that you can trust in God because God has opened your eyes to see the glory of Christ. That's your message. That's the message you've been called to proclaim. That's the message you've been given from God Himself. It's the message you need to be living out. So ask yourself, are you repenting of sin today? Are you trusting in God's promised provisions? Are you trusting that Jesus paid it all? Or are you trying to earn God's favor by cleaning up your act? Listen, repentance doesn't do that. Repentance doesn't try to clean up the act. Repentance is a confession that you can't clean up this mess. Repentance is a confession that says, I've offended such a holy and righteous God, there is nothing I can do to atone for my sins. 
Only his son can give that kind of offering for me. Only the righteous one can take my place. Only the king who I call on can serve in that way. So I, therefore, should serve my king by submitting to his leadership, submitting to his lordship. If you do that, it will be evident that you belong in his kingdom. If you don't do that, if you're not willing to do that, I beg you today to bow before this king or face him on judgment day as your judge. I call upon you to repent. Trust in God's promises that were revealed in Christ Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for sinners. If you desire that, you need to give thanks this morning. You need to give thanks for, number one, God's divine messenger who brought us God's compassion personally. That's Jesus. You need to give thanks for God's divine method, which is preaching, that allows us to follow Jesus' passion. You need to give thanks for God's divine message that promises the hope of salvation to all those who trust in God's provision and the sacrifice of His Son. See, Mark's gospel is, is pointing us to the Lordship of Christ, to His reign over the earth, His reign over the hearts of men. You'll see that next week when we talk about Jesus calling His disciples and how they left everything and submitted to Jesus as their Lord. They abandoned all the world's lusts and pleasures to follow their King. We're called to do that today as well. There's a greater reward for us. Being called into the kingdom is the greatest reward of all. And one day seeing that kingdom come and our king reigning, being vindicated on this earth, that is worth serving him now as his ambassador. So I commend you to the word of God to find how you should follow your king this morning. Let's pray and give him thanks for that.